The history of American cinema is a reflection of American history itself. The moving image pervades our daily lives and has for, for decades, for generations. Movies are the shared space in which we tell our own stories back to ourselves or try to envision new and better stories than the ones we're actually living. Really thinking about how movies operate, not just as works of art, but also as a space of producing um, empathy. But who gets to control that space and who gets to occupy it? These are the questions that have shaped Jacqueline Stewart's career, specifically when it comes to the histories of overlooked black filmmakers and black audiences. And over all these years, I can't tell you the number of times that students have come up to me after a lecture or people who come to community-based screenings that I've done just mystified that they didn't know this history. You know, this has been part of a much longer problem of under-narrating certain histories. Stuart is a professor of cinema studies at the University of Chicago. She's also the host of Silent Sunday Nights on Turner Classic Movies and the chief artistic and programming officer at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. As if that weren't enough, last year she won a MacArthur Fellowship. What I was told is that the work that I've done to preserve the history of Black cinema, to present it in a wide variety of ways, is valuable. That, that really means a lot to me. Receiving the MacArthur really helped me to see the connections across the many different types of, uh, of work that I've been doing. From the University of Chicago Podcast Network, this is Big Brains, a podcast about the pioneering research and the pivotal breakthroughs that are reshaping our world. On this episode, Preserving the History of Black Cinema. I'm your host, Paul Rand. Jacqueline Stewart has been talking about movies for a very long time. I mean, I used to stay up late at night watching movies with my aunt Constance. She was born in 1921, so had these memories of going to see movies, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s. She knew all the stars, and she used to just download all that information to me. We watched movies, and there were commercial breaks, and during the commercials... We would have these conversations. So I think that was a really early modeling of talking about movies, watching them, but also having dialogue about them. And that just really meant a lot to me. And I'm still doing that essentially to this day. When people talk about the history of black cinema, movies made by black creators, a lot of people start with Spike Lee in the 80s or the black exploitation films in the 1970s. But Stewart's work has documented that the history of black cinema actually goes all the way back to the early 1900s during the heart of segregation. You know, I have to say that I had the reaction when I learned about uh, Oscar Michaud, pioneering African-American filmmaker who made more than 40 films between 1918 and 1948. When I learned about Noble and George Johnson, who founded a Lincoln motion picture company in the 19 teens. When I learned about James and Alois Gist, they were kind of itinerant evangelists who made films that they would show along with their kind of religious services. In the 30s, the, my reaction was, why didn't I know about these people? When Spike Lee came on the scene, it was so radical. He's such a revolutionary filmmaker. He was not the first one. Even when I briefly sort of studied filmmaking, people would say, oh, you want to be Spike Lee? <laughs> it's a wonderful, you know, connection. But to know that there had been generations of Black filmmakers before him, it would just seem to me I had been missing an essential component of my own cultural history. And it became really interesting to me to think about how our understanding of American film history, let's say, is shifted when we think about a film like D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation alongside Oscar Michaud's Within Our Gates from 1919. 
but those films had not been preserved. They had not been studied. It, it, it completely reworks the ways that we understand the operations of silent film, that, that we think about narratives of victimization, like sort of representational victimization, because it never was the case that Black artists were not responding to their representation in mainstream media. And the representations of Black people in the mainstream movies of this early period reflected the disturbing overt racism of that period. Watermelon eating, you know, comedies of that era. Stewart's cinema studies are unique in that they don't only focus on Black movie creators. She gives just as much attention to Black audiences. Can we imagine Black spectators taking that in, right? And then what, what kind of reaction would they have had? So it, to me, it, it's, it's a question of, thinking about how the impact of these stereotypical, sometimes quite viciously racist representations, we often, you know, kind of ponder how they impact white people, like how they shaped perceptions of black people in the white imagination, but they've also had an an impact on uh, the black imagination. And for some, I think that it has meant um, turning away from these media. Uh, I really think that there have been ways that black audiences develop strategies for uh, appreciating some components and rejecting others. There's a kind of, you know, an interaction that happens. I've called this reconstructive spectatorship where you sort of, you know, kind of pick and choose as a kind of engagement that recognizes the, the, the context in which these films are made, but still wants to have some pleasure in, in the social and the aesthetic dimensions of film. A clear example comes from one of Stuart's favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life, which many of you probably just watched over the holidays. Well, we watch It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas Eve without fail. Have it pretty much memorized. We are big Jimmy Stewart fans. No relation, I don't think, but we love Jimmy Stewart like he's related to us. But we love it too because of this character, Annie, the maid, because she has a speaking role. There's this little visual gag where um, this young man in the household, white guy, just slaps the maid on on her ass as she's going into the kitchen. So it's completely common, right? And I think that there have been ways that Black spectators have always recognized these moments and either, you know, sort of reject the entire system wholesale or uh, develop a kind of uh, a viewing approach that almost, you know, it's kind of an ironic enjoyment. But many Black creators, even in this highly oppressive moment, didn't want to settle. You know, Black artists and entrepreneurs became just as interested in the medium of film as others and immediately began taking up the camera to not just correct the negative representations of Black people that existed across all media, but also really interested to find new ways to speak to Black publics. And so there were dozens and dozens of these race film companies, race movies, race films, as they were called, all over the country, very much a kind of regional enterprise in some ways. Oscar Michaud was the most prolific of this group. And where was, you've mentioned him a few times. Give me a little background on Oscar. Sure. He uh, had worked as a Pullman porter. Out of Chicago? Out of Chicago, yeah. While working on the trains, he overheard sort of white businessmen talking about the opening up of lands out west. And so he uh, actually purchased property in South Dakota, became a homesteader. And what year is this, Jacqueline? 1907. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So he's the only Black person in this entire region, very much influenced by the philosophies of Booker T. Washington and the idea that you plant yourself in the soil, that land, ownership, farming could be a way of building up power, uh, economic power and political power. 
And he was really proselytizing this, trying to convince other uh, African-Americans to do this. <laughs> and then he recognizes, well, this could be a really, you know, compelling film. And he starts talking to some of the black filmmakers around the country. And he's so audacious. He wants this to be seven reels and he wants to direct it himself. And they're like, well, no, we're not going to work with you. So he ends up raising the funds among his white neighbors uh, in South Dakota and makes the film himself and shoots a lot of the film in South Dakota. So that's his first film. And he just continues to use this kind of hustle and um, dogged spirit to continue to produce films over the next 30 years. Wow, okay. And is there something in any of his movies or scenes or anything else for him that really stood out for you? Well, I mentioned his film Within Our Gates from 1920. This is a film that was released, you know, very shortly after the so-called Red Summer of 1919, when race riots had broken out all across the country, including, you know, just horrendous violence in Chicago. Uh, and this is a film that looks at the experiences of a Black woman played by uh, Evelyn Preer, who was sort of the first lady of, of the Black stage at that time. She's a woman from the South who really wants to uplift her race as a teacher and support a school where she's teaching in the South. And there's a scene in which we see her being attacked by a white man who's trying to rape her. And it's intercut with scenes of her parents being lynched it's, it's just remarkable that he had the, um, you know, the boldness to represent this kind of the two sides of racial violence, racially motivated violence, rape and lynching together. He, he in other films, represents the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, he really didn't shy away from issues that we're still talking about with regard to racial violence and racial oppression. Movies have incredible cultural power. They change the audiences that see them and thus change societies. But what effect did these early race films have on black audiences? And what effect could they have had if more white audiences had seen them? His films were banned and deeply censored. We never know when looking at a print, a Michelle print now, how fully it reflects his vision or if it's exactly what, you know, audiences saw because censorship happened in kind of local and regional modes during that time. But that's a sequence that's been much written about with good reason. I think it's a, it's a really important demonstration of his, again, audacity as a filmmaker and how he understood the movies to be not just like a, an, an entertaining art form, but one that could speak directly to uh, the most pressing Black political issues. The cultural power of Black cinema would slowly begin to shift with the history of our country, but a major turning point happened in the 70s with the arrival of black exploitation films. And when people think about the beginning of the black exploitation films, they often think of Shaft. Shaft. But the first black exploitation film was actually. It was Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song by Melvin Van Peebles. Where's Sweetback? I'm looking for myself. No, I haven't, Jim. Never heard of him. What else do we go by? And that film was independently produced and shattered box office records across the country even though um, it was given an X rating because it has some pretty graphic, sexual, and violent content. Melvin Van Peebles used that at, as part of his publicity, actually. He had a tagline that said, rated X by an all-white jury. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and used that to really galvanize Black audiences to come and see this film, basically, that white people don't want you to see. That film did so remarkably well at the box office that other studios then started to try to replicate its success. This is a moment when the movie industry is failing. 
because of white flight, the audiences that had been going to those large movie palaces and downtown areas fled to the suburbs, but who was still in the cities was Black people. So these theaters were, you know, there's a captive audience of, of Black spectators. Um, major studios, as well as independent um, studios, really started to take advantage of this economic possibility of making films very cheaply that could do really well with Black audiences. The movie Shaft that you mentioned actually um, saved MGM from bankruptcy as of this identification of uh, what had up to that point been an untapped Black market. And what effect did these films have on the Black audiences that saw them? Did the portrayal of strong Black men as leading action heroes change the culture? Stewart says, absolutely. The character that um, Melvin Van Peebles plays in Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. This is a Black male hero is fully sexualized. This is also a really important dimension of why Black audiences, especially younger audiences, male audiences responded so positively to these characters, not deferential, you know, physical prowess, both sexual and um, kind of tough, you know, violent. Then we get a whole series of other Black exploitation heroes like Superfly, for example that really are in some ways responding to the frustrations that many Black people were feeling with the kind of slowness of the results of the civil rights movement. How do white people, white audiences respond to these films? In a variety of ways. I mean, I think that in some ways there was, you know, some folks had some anxiety about them. And the anxiety wasn't just about sort of presenting these militant heroes. And still we see confusion, if not kind of animosity when there are media you know, products that are not for white people. Like that's still, that's still a thing, right? When I think back to Tyler Perry's emergence, for example, for years, articles about Tyler Perry would start with, you've never heard of this person or you know, who is this guy? When millions of black people have been, you know, following his plays and his films. So the idea that there could be something so popular and meaningful to, you know, like a, a different audience uh, it just that, that that shock registering that just went on for far too long. After the break, how the act of documenting and preserving films is itself steeped in racial politics. Stay with us. Big Brains is supported by the University of Chicago Graham School. We open the doors of UChicago to learners everywhere. Experience the university's distinctive approach to inquiry through our online and in-person courses in the liberal arts culture, science, society, and more. Learn with eminent instructors and extraordinary peers in small interactive classes. Spring course registration opens February 6th. Visit graham.uchicago.edu slash bigbrains. We've talked about movie makers and audiences, but when it comes to understanding the history of black cinema and its role in society, there's another group of people Stewart says is equally important, the archivists and preservationists. Archival work, preservation work is really kind of invisible, and I think unfairly so. To understand why this work is so important, we have to travel back to the 1980s in a little town called Tyler, Texas. It was just another warehouse in Tyler, Texas, but inside that warehouse, a vibrant world of the 1930s and 40s waited to come alive again. These precious relics became known as the Tyler, Texas Black Film Collection. Yeah, the Tyler, Texas Black Film Collection was a really interesting 
case of film preservation. This is a group of films that was, I'm making quotation marks with my finger, discovered in a warehouse in Tyler, Texas in the early 1980s by an archivist named G. William Jones, who is a, a, a white archivist. After receiving a tip from the warehouse manager, Dr. Jones went to the old building. There, in a dusty, forgotten corner, he found a stack of aging steel film canisters. Inside was the missing link to black cinema. But he immediately began to seek sort of black expertise and authentication because he recognized that it was important for black voices to uh, attest to the importance of the Tyler, Texas black film collection. There were black directors, producers, screenwriters, black actors and actresses all in control of their own destiny, telling their stories as they saw fit. So that really led me on a trail of thinking about the racial politics of film archiving and, present and preservation more broadly. Who does that work? Why do they do it? How do we frame these discoveries? And just rethinking the idea that we can ever complete the archival record because we can't, or that uh, film preservation is always a kind of passive um, and celebratory activity rather than something that is just as grounded in social and historical circumstances as our scholarship. We, we write from our positionalities. Uh, the people who care for these cultural artifacts, who work at memory institutions, are doing incredibly important work. And even within the profession for a long time, people were sort of encouraged to see that work as you know, a kind of neutral caretaking, but it's not the case. Every archive has, for example, a huge backlog of material, right? Things come in faster than they can be processed. And then decisions have to be made about what to process first. Like what, what, what are, what, what does it seem people most want to consult? What is collected, how it is prioritized in terms of processing, even thinking about the ways that in film preservation, decisions that we make about, you know, just how things look, how to, how to, how to uh, fill in missing material. When, we, when, when films come in that are partial, this is true for some of Oscar Micheaux's films, archivists would go back and, uh, you know, create title cards that, that recap the missing scenes, right? Like there, there's, a cre there's creative work happening. There was a restoration of uh, a Marian Anderson concert, the Lincoln Memorial concert, very, you know, important moment for her and for the world. 75,000 mass before Lincoln Memorial to hear Marian Anderson, colored contralto, make her capital debut at the Great Emancipator Shrine. Refusal of the DAR to let her use their hall fanned a countrywide controversy. And there are some historical reconstructions in that, in that footage. So, you know, I just think it's really important to recognize this work, not just to honor work that's typically invisible, but also to give us a broader sense of the implications of these decisions and what gets preserved, you know, now might look different from the way that we could see the result of a preservation that happened 20 years ago. The importance of preservation and archiving was on full display in 2018 with the discovery of the first ever film of two black people kissing, believed to be from 1898. Well, I have to give credit to my colleague, Alison Nadia Field, because she is the one who has really 
done so much to reveal the importance of that very early footage, Something Good, Negro Kiss. Was that the name of the movie, Something Good? Yes, that's the kind of title that, uh, yeah, that's the, the, the title of that really important, you know, snatch of footage of a black couple kissing. And she has, you know, talked quite a bit about the importance of this really early representation of black intimacy that's, that is certainly rare for that time period and then is rare over the decades to come. And why was this, why was this so important? What made it rare? Uh, because so many black representations, the vast majority were purely comic um, and were really clearly oriented to a particular kind of white dismissive gaze. We could see, we could say that there are aspects of something good Negro kiss that are also kind of, you know, voyeuristic in a way that there might be just like some white attraction to a spectacle of black people kissing. They may not have seen that as a touching thing. White audiences might've read that as a funny thing, Um, but to know that it existed and that there was a moment of collaboration happening there. I think we're, we're learning more and more. There was also some rediscovered footage of the vaudevillian Burt Williams in which we see him and a black cast interacting with white filmmakers, it's sort of breaking down the idea that black artists didn't have any kind of agency or that we fully understood the feeling, the context of how these early images were created. The importance of film preservation as a lens through which to recontextualize and find joy extends beyond Hollywood for Stuart. She's also become fascinated with the power of home movies, which are the films we make for ourselves. The word joy comes up again and again and again when people are engaging with home movies for some interesting reasons. I think um, some obvious, some not. To explore that idea, she started the Southside Home Movie Project. I founded the project in 2005. More and more film scholars and archivists have been paying attention to non-theatrical films, industrial films, training films, educational films. Home movies are a part of that group of you know non-theatrical filmmaking that actually outnumbers sort of commercial feature length films when we look at the volume of films that have been made across history and all around the world. I'm a native South Sider. So just kind of as a as a kind of experiment, I put some flyers around. I worked with a group of students and said, you know, if you have all the home movies, we'd love to digitize them. Being at the University of Chicago, I knew that I could take advantage of the, you know, sort of digital expertise at the university and maybe do some good to share these films back with people who might have them in their attics and their closets and so forth, but they don't have projectors anymore or projectors that work or digitizing them as a free service. I was really interested to interview the families to learn more about the footage. These films, these eight millimeter, super eight millimeter films, small gauge films tend to be silent. There are some with sound, but for the most part, they're silent. So I wanted the voices of the families to help explain what are we looking at? You know, we were immediately overwhelmed. People have so much of this material and uh, it's invaluable. I mean, not just from the perspective of reinstating the importance of personal archives, seeing people engage with their own family histories emotionally. I mean, it's a really emotional process for many people to see their, you know, mothers moving. It's, It's different from looking at a photograph of someone who has passed. It brings people to life in a different way. And that activates memories in a particularly intimate way. Um, So developing kind of methodologies around how to recover that history in a respectful way has been a really important part of our process. But then it's like you see buildings that no longer stand and models of cars and like the old CTA buses that we used to call the green limousine back when they were green. And uh, and we do screenings and people would just yell out, oh, that's so and so. That's this place. That's. 
and um, and seeing people, especially across the rigid racial segregation of the South side of Chicago, like family might have films of Bridgeport family from Bronzeville. And yet they're looking at these films together and having conversations about Chicago history, about personal history that they never would have had without this kind of, of motivation. So the screenings have always been an incredibly important part of the project's work. And, and any things, movies that stood out to you from this period that you just looked at and thought, man, that's, that is a great piece of footage. Yeah. Well, I mean, I discovered that my family had home movies, which I did not know until I founded the project. So I could selfishly talk about some of that. But I'll say my dear friend, Guion Foreman, out to me and shared some films from his family, the Gene Patton collection. It's our largest collection, over 100 reels. And in one of the films, we see Robert Patton. We don't see him. He's filming his wife, Jean, in their newly remodeled kitchen. She's wearing these gold lame pants. <laughs> And the kitchen has this really gorgeous gold yellow appliance. And um, she's smoking and she's just so glamorous in her kitchen and so proud. And she kind of plays this very performative game of solitaire sort of, you know, it's it's many people get excited about that kind of thing because it just shows the black middle class, which is underrepresented. For me, though, it's also amazing just to see her being a star in her own environment and that and the love that her husband has for her and, and the life they've built for themselves and knowing that they were so motivated to, to document this, that they wanted to share this and, and, re, and have that be remembered is just one of my favorite moments across the archive. Stewart's film preservation work doesn't end with home movies. She's also serving in a new role at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. Yes, I am working as Chief Artistic and Programming Officer at the newly opened Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. And what is the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures? It is the first of its kind uh, of this scale in the United States. Film museums are very rare, but it's an institution that sort of traces the long and diverse history of movie making because it's affiliated with the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, a museum that is in working in very close collaboration with all of the branches of the Academy. So we have galleries that narrate every aspect of the filmmaking process from writing to set design to editing to hair and makeup. And we do so in a way that is international in scope. There are a few moments across the museum that do deep dives into the work of particular filmmakers. We have a gallery that's a collaboration with Spike Lee, a gallery that's a collaboration with Pedro Amadovar, and we have a really robust uh, program of film screenings and educational programs, uh, public programs. So I was especially excited about this because it was a way to take all of my interest in sharing film history and uh, to do so in a physical space. And it's been really exciting to see how this is a space where the Academy, which is known primarily for the Oscars broadcast, right? Right. I'd like to thank the Academy. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'd like to thank the Academy <laughs> because it has created this institution that is a, is a constant place of interaction between filmmakers and the public. And that interaction brings us to the last important piece in this story. We have history, we have preservation, but like Stuart's work at the museum, there's also presentation the way these films are contextualized and displayed to the public. This is something that Stuart knows personally about in her role as a host at Turner Classic Movies. It's been also very instructive for me to think about how to combine 
what might seem like a kind of innocuous context or trivia about films with some of the deeper kinds of questions that these films raise, especially now that more people hopefully will continue to have heightened awareness of some of the problematic histories of representation and exclusion when it comes to the voices of folks who've been, you know, authorized to make feature films over the last hundred plus years. What's interesting to me is to sort of, you know, disentangle different traditions of spectatorship. When HBO Max decided to continue running Gone with the Wind, the notoriously racially problematic classic depicting life in the Civil War South, they asked Stewart to write an introduction for the film. What was, you know, running in the back of my mind, of course, as a result of all the research that I've done, is that people have had different reactions to Gone with the Wind. Like, it's not just that now this classic is understood to be problematic. First of all, now not everyone sees it as problematic still. And 80 years ago, people were raising the same concerns about Gone with the Wind that were emerging in the wake of George Floyd. So it's not like we somehow now are looking back at films that were intended to be entertaining with an inappropriately critical eye. Many spectators and groups, and not just African-American spectators, were, were raising concerns about Gone with the Wind as a novel, as a film in you know pre-production while it was being produced and then when it was released. So recognizing that, that the movie going public is not a monolith and uh, helping people to see that diversity of, of reaction, I think is incredibly important. These histories are complex and complicated. The story of American cinema is the story of American society. Gone with the Wind is surely problematic, but it was also the very first film for which a black actress, Hattie McDaniel, won an Academy Award, a historic moment. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, fellow members of the motion picture industry and honored guests. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you. And yet we must also document and remember that at the Oscar ceremony, Hattie McDaniel was forced to sit at a segregated table on the side of the room, separated from the rest of Hollywood. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on Big Brains, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories, not through opinions and anecdotes, but through rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. If you want to understand the political science behind the political headlines, then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Big Brains is a production of the UChicago Podcast Network. If you like what you heard, please give us a review and a rating. The show is hosted by Paul M. Rand and produced by me, Matt Hodap, with assistance from Alyssa Eads. Thanks for listening.